A few years ago, management at one of the two commercial airports in Houston, Texas, faced a problem. They were receiving just an unbearable, unending, relentless flow of complaints from passengers that baggage claim was just taking way too long. The complaints seemed to center on one baggage claim area in the airport, and passengers were coming from another specific gate area, and management did not know how to solve the problem. They tried to hire more baggage handlers, and no matter how many more they handled, they were still receiving complaints from passengers. And yet, I don't know how long it took, I don't know how many additional baggage handlers were hired, eventually someone in airport management had a brilliant idea. They suggested, what if we move or lengthen the distance between airplane gates and baggage claim? And they realized that they could not cut down on the time it took for baggage to go from airplane to the baggage claim belts. But they could increase the walking time of passengers. And they would not feel as if they were waiting so long on their luggage if they spent that time walking. You know what happened? The number of complaints about baggage claim plummeted. Airport management learned the lesson that you and I know, and that is as human beings, we don't like waiting. The problem was not the time it took to get from one place to another. It was the fact that people were getting to baggage claim too soon. But you and I know this. Waiting is miserable. How many of you this morning, this week, this month, this year, this decade said, you know, Lord, I think I need to grow in my patience. Would you, would you throw some obstacles my way to help me wait? No, we don't do that. Waiting is miserable. And yet, what we see in Scripture, what we're going to see in this passage today in Luke 12, is that waiting is something the Lord lays before us. Not just waiting in general like I wait for something to come about that I want to come about, but waiting itself is a discipline, and it's a, it's a means by which we go about life, not waiting in general, but waiting upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Waiting until that day we see His face again. Jesus tells us it is serious business how we wait. So I invite you to consider how well do you wait What are you waiting upon? Is your heart set upon the Lord that you are waiting upon? Or are you filling the time until He comes back? Waiting is not passive, it is active. It is not casual, it is full contact. I urge you, based upon this passage, with every fiber of your being, wait on the Lord. Let me say that again. With every fiber of your being, wait on the Lord. Listen to Luke chapter 12, verse 35 to 53. Our Lord Jesus, addressing a group of disciples, a gathered crowd, he says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. 
Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household, to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will, get, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is God's Word. May He write its truths upon our hearts. Our Lord shares three reasons for us to vigilantly wait on Him with every fiber of our being. First, He simply lays before us the why we wait. Why we wait on the Lord, verses 35 to 40. As I've already touched on, by our kind of foundational human nature, at the core of our DNA, We do not like waiting. We are allergic to waiting. And yet our Lord Jesus cares for us so much that he carefully, wisely explains to us as Christians why we should be serious about the Christian work of waiting well. Understand this. He's not talking about waiting like you do on the cable repairman, knowing, okay, he's going to come sometime between 10 and 4 on Tuesday, allegedly, And I just sit here and wait. Apologies if there are any cable repair men or women in the room. No, he's talking about an active, preparing yourself form of waiting. Not like a a cable repairman, but like you're waiting, like a bride waiting for her wedding day. A woman does not get engaged and say, okay, we're going to set the wedding for October 27th. I'll see you then. 
No, there are phone calls to be made. There are dresses to be bought. There are bridesmaids to do whatever you do with bridesmaids. There are all sorts of things that are done in preparation. Re- uh, uh, reservations made for location and reception and rehearsals and all of these things that go in. The waiting for a bride and groom, it is what? An active waiting. And that is what Jesus calls us to. And he begins by sharing a unique illustration about servants who work in a house. The master is away at a wedding. In Jesus' day, in his culture, weddings were not something that was done in just a few hours, but it was a multi-day matter. And so servants are waiting at the home of their master, and they're waiting for him to come home from a wedding. He could be home one day, he could be home the next, he could be home a week later, you don't know. His camel could break down on the way home. But their job is to wait. See the intentionality, the vigilance required of the servants in verses 35 to 36. Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. That that language, stay dressed for action, communicates like like keep your loins girded up, like you're ready for battle. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. You see, the Christian life, it's not about deciding to follow Jesus and then you do your thing Go about life just knowing, okay, I've got Jesus squared away. I'll be, I'll be good. I'll get to heaven one day. I think everything's all good. I call upon God if I get in any hairy situations here. No, 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 no. The Christian life is about actively waiting upon our Lord, preparing to see the Lord whose face we will one day see. And yet, just as I said at the outset, none of us have probably asked the Lord to help us grow as waiters, those who wait on the Lord. In the same way, we don't meditate upon the fact that one day we will see our Lord's face. Or perhaps we don't meditate on it enough. Lately, how much have you reflected upon the coming return of Jesus Christ? Is that one of those things about Christianity? You're saying, oh, I don't really know what to do with that. Okay, I know he came once, born to Mary, born of a virgin lived his life, died, resurrected. I I got all that, but he's coming again? I'm not sure what to think of that. Perhaps that's your attitude. If that's not your attitude, that's a lot of our hearts. On June 28, 2009, renowned scientist Stephen Hawking hosted an invitation-only party at the University of Cambridge. He had champagne, he had appetizers, he had balloons. It was a carefully planned party. But there was only one hitch, He intentionally sent the invitations to the party. He intentionally sent those out after the party occurred. It was on purpose. You see, the party was intended for, though the only people invited were time travelers. And when no one showed up, he concluded time travel is not real. If they had received the party, the invitation, they would have traveled back and come to my party. It was an experiment in time travel. If we are honest when we talk about the return of Jesus, we think of it with the same certainty of perhaps attending a party waiting on time travels, time travelers. You say, maybe it could happen. Yeah, okay, it makes sense. Theoretically, I guess. But I don't think he's going to show up. I don't have much certainty. Maybe we would never say these things out loud, but how we wait upon him reveals the seriousness of whether or not we think he's actually coming. 
You see, Jesus tells us to wait with intentionality, and I think He does this for two reasons. He does this because He will, in fact, return at some point, and He tells us to wait on His return because waiting with His return in mind is a fantastic way to orient our lives around His purposes for us. That's how I remember when I was learning to drive, I was taught to keep my hands on 10 and 2. And Jesus says, you want to keep your hands on 10 and 2 as you follow me, you keep one hand on looking at what I have done and one hand on looking at what I still will do when I return. That's a Christian life. Looking at what he has done and what he will do. Now let's pause. There, there, there's possibility here, in fact, a high likelihood, that if I were to give truth serum to everyone in this room, there are a few of you that would say, this is wild. You're telling me that these... That, that y- you Christians, you believe that Jesus will come back one, one day. Some spectacular unveiling. As we sang in, in I believe, his crowning with many crowns, there will be a trumpet blast. Somehow everyone will hear it, and he will return. Will, will, will he return like in one place? Will everyone all over the world see him? I don't know. But Scripture reveals that, yes, he will, in fact, return. And so Jesus lays before us that if we're going to understand Him and His work, His teaching, His miracles, His cross, His resurrection, His ascension, even His present reign today, we must not only look back, but we must look ahead. See, Christianity is a solemn, private, quiet faith that solely looks to the past. Maybe, all your, maybe your conception of what the future holds is, is yeah, we'll, we'll sit amongst clouds playing harps, maybe seeing loved ones. No, 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 that's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith, as revealed in the Bible, looks forward to the day we will see our Lord's face. And the day when He will come back and He will welcome His people to Himself and He will begin to right all of the wrongs that this world experiences. When you look back and you look forward, this idea of actively waiting on the Lord starts to make a lot more sense. And, you know, there's something we have to understand about what it means to wait on the Lord. We, we see events unfolding in the world, and we, we see, like, like uh, evil as relates to, and, and war as relates to, like, Israel and Hamas, and, and we think, okay, what does this mean about what the Bible says about Israel? And we start to try to put together how all this fits. But may I uh, contend for you that what Scripture shows us about the coming return of the Lord and, and trying to understand how everything all fits together, it always is given to the people of God in Scripture, not for them to figure out when He will return, but for the people of God to prepare themselves for His return, whenever that may be. Does that make sense? And so, the Lord just lays before us here the seriousness of waiting upon Him, or the necessity of waiting upon Him. Now, let's see the seriousness of waiting on the Lord. Wait, 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 hold on. I don't want to skip something. I was about to skip something that you desperately need. Boy, that's a bold assertion, isn't it, Stephen? <laughs> I was about to skip something that I desperately need. Look, look at this. Now, there's something incredible in verse 37. The Lord Jesus says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Okay, that's everything Stephen's been saying. Stay awake. But now hear this. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. This is a total flip, flipping of the script. You think it would read, 
wait upon your master to return because he's going to get back and he's going to need to put his feet up. He's going to get back and he is going to be hungry. You better have a meal ready to come out of the oven. He's going to get back and he's going to have a list of demands of things that must be done. No, that's not what our Lord says. Our Lord says that I will get back and those who are waiting for me, what? I will serve. I will bring them to a feast of my grace and my mercy. Your Lord who upholds you by his grace today, right now, he will satisfy you with the joy of his presence when he returns. Your Lord who upholds your hand as you navigate whatever path you walk in life right now, not only holding your hand but literally holding your heart, He will welcome you into the warmth of his presence and he will pull the seat back and tell you to take a seat. You are home now. Come and feast upon the blessing of his grace. You see, we we don't anticipate his return because we're slaves in a home awaiting a harsh master. Or we're teenagers who have had a little too much fun and we've got to get things cleaned up before mom and dad get home. No, we are joyful servants, gladly yearning to see our Lord, to be consumed with the joys of His abundant grace that grips our hearts. Verse 40, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So I've tried to make the case here, right here, okay, what are we doing? We should be waiting on the Lord. Now we go next to how do I wait on the Lord, okay? So I've got the foundation, Yes, we should wait. Now next, how do we wait? Verses 41 to 48. In verse 41, Peter asks a question. Basically saying, Lord, is this a message for everyone that would hear you? Or just for us disciples? Perfectly reasonable question. There are a number of times in the Gospels where Peter says things that you you, you hear him saying, you're like, oh, Peter, you shouldn't have said that. This is not one of them. Perfectly understandable, reasonable question. But... Look at how Jesus responds, or namely, he doesn't respond. Verse 42, the Lord just keeps going. The Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Okay, let's pause. It's a blessed thing whenever you send out Christmas cards to put a nice little Bible verse on it, you know, to... to, just celebrate Jesus and, and try to speak the hope of Christianity to, to those who need it. I know none of you are going to put on your Christmas card this year. The master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That really grips the heart, doesn't it? What is Jesus talking about here? This is probably one of those times where the rest of the disciples were looking at Jesus and actually saying, like, Peter's not a... Jesus, tone it down. No. 
Do you see the seriousness of waiting well? Namely, in this parable, the master will come and destroy those who are not waiting well. Now, there's speculation and debate over, the, this, over this whole parable. Who is the faithful and wise manager? Is that, there, there's some who would say uh, that it is all Christians. There's some that would say it is uh, uh, pastors or church leaders. Some of you would really like that if that was the case. You'd say, okay, I'm exempt. Stephen, hope, hope it, things work out for you, but doesn't include me. I think that this is actually speaking to all Christians. The faithful and wise manager is a parable teaching us to wait on the Lord. But let's pause and let's, let's suppose that it's for pastors and church leaders because these aren't in conflict with one another. If it's for pastors, if it's for church leaders, then I ask humbly, would you pray for myself as well as our elders that serve our church? Pray for us to be diligent in the task of shepherding you, the church body, our church family. Pray for us that we would be diligent in helping you to wait upon the Lord well, in presenting before you week by week, in sermons, in, in, in conversations, in interactions, Jesus Christ, whose love for you knows no bounds, whose blood shed for your sins and his offer of new life for you knows no expiration date. Pray that we would set this Jesus before you and we would continually just hold him up before you and, 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 and say, would you take a look at this Jesus? Now look at him from this angle, from this angle, and look at how his grace satisfies whatever burdens you carry. Pray that we would do this well. But now, as we consider this as all as Christians, pray that we would, as a church, never lose sight of the promise of the rewards for those who are waiting upon the Lord. Verse 43, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. This passage that we have read is shocking in a number of ways, including the parts that we paused on a few moments ago. What is this master going to do to unfaithful servants? But you know what else is shocking? We now have a second instance here of a master who loves and gives of himself so radically towards his totally undeserving servants that it borderline makes us uncomfortable. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find. For verse 44, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Do you, do you see that? It doesn't say, he'll give you a little slice. It doesn't say like, like you'll come and see all that Jesus has. And you'll say, wow, Jesus, that's really impressive. No, he says, he will set you over all that he has. You and I, this is a truth for all of us, brothers and sisters, who are united with Jesus in faith, you and I are co-heirs of the rewards that are given to him. 
And so as we wait upon him who purchased us by his blood, who is returning for us one day, we wait upon him knowing that the rewards, the inheritance that is his are ours as well. The smile of God upon his son with whom he is well pleased is a smile that makes its way through Christ and is upon you and I, sons and daughters of his. The joys of eternity in his presence. The joys of heaven seeing and feeling his goodness that envelops us. They are ours in Christ. And he doesn't say, okay, I'll give you a portion. I'll give you a share. No, you have a master that is going to serve you with a feast of his grace that will satisfy the deepest needs and the greatest hurts that your heart will ever feel, and he will satisfy you for eternity. And you have a master who, will give you him, who has given you himself in his cross, who will give you himself again when he returns, and who will give you all things through his grace. Just look at this. And what do we do? He says, wait on me. Are you waiting on the Lord today? Are you waiting on the Lord? You wait by faith. You wait by hope in Him. The best definition I can give you for waiting well for Jesus is to orient your life around His Word, His church, His work in the world. Orient yourself, your heart, your disposition towards actively preparing yourself to be in His presence for eternity. And so I'm going to give some ways in which we wait well. But if you hear these as here's the things that you must do to see your Lord, you are missing the boat. Rather, if you hear these with a disposition that says, I want my Lord. I want Christ who welcomes me to himself, who gives me his grace. And I want my heart to be transformed by, to be captivated by him. That nothing that this world can throw at me can take my eyes off of him. Here's where it comes from. This means you make time in the Bible a high priority. Because you recognize that it is through the Bible that he transforms and changes our hearts, our attitudes, our perspective, our lives in a very manner that prepares us for heaven. This means communing with him in prayer. Desperately asking that he would work in your heart to make you more like him. To make his people, his church, a passion of your heart. That he would do the work in you of making himself shine abundantly before you as the all-consuming prize that your heart desires. To the point that the things of this earth, the things of this life would grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. To wait on Jesus means actively, diligently prioritizing his church, being with his people gathering with them to worship on Sundays, knowing you need to sit under the preaching of His Word, knowing you need the encouragement and the relationships that His church affords you with other Christians. To wait well on Jesus is to acknowledge that the Christian life is not an individual endeavor. It's not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but to recognize how we need one another as a corporate body. It's to recognize that when you might feel as if, I don't know about going to church today, you might have the word of encouragement. The, the, you might be the vehicle of grace whereby God encourages the brokenhearted Christian who would sit down on the other side of the pew from you. It means joining his church in membership, seeking to uphold the commitments of the covenant that we make together because these encapsulate what it means for a Christian to wait well on the Lord in accord with Scripture. 
To wait well on Jesus recognizes how the temptation of pleasure or luxury, of importance and busyness, of anything that we would say that brings our eyes off of Christ who reigns over us and who is coming for us and puts our eyes on this life and this world and says this is all that there is, is to recognize the folly of these things. If your calendar is full of things that focus your heart right here, right now, your heart will not be full at the prospect of the return of Jesus. See, the Christian hope of eternity and being with Jesus is never something that stays in the clouds with no power to transform us here. In fact, what we believe about tomorrow will always transform how we live today. You cannot detach then from now. Let me illustrate this. About 10 years ago, beekeepers in northeastern France became alarmed when their bees started making blue and green honey. After carefully investigating the matter, it was determined that the bees were spending time in the grounds near a chocolate factory about three miles away. Particularly, they were, pro- they, they were spending time in processed waste from that M&M pack, uh, factory. So it was turning their honey blue and green. These beekeepers could not sell the blue and green honey. They had to find ways to keep their bees from this factory. As Christians, the honey of our lives will reflect the hope and the focus of our lives. If our money, if our possessions, if that is the most important thing about us, that will influence where our hope lies and the disposition of our hearts today. If we seek a sense of importance or seek a sense of, of, of self-value or self-worth in what other people think of me, I have this person in my life, whether it's a romantic interest or whether it's an employer that I'm trying to impress so I can climb the ladder or anyone else that, that all of a sudden I start to be honest with myself and I say, that person controls what I think about myself or where I find myself worth. Jesus says, no, you find it in me. And you wait on me by faith. And you will find that the waiting life is not the wasted life. See, we cannot plead ignorance regarding what our Lord demands of us. Just look at verse 48. The one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, he will receive a light beating. Everyone else to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now, this is a parable. We should be careful about applying it, applying it exactly how we think it should be applied. Parables are meant to communicate principles. Yet that parables are meant to communicate principles. The principle here, wait well, see the seriousness of waiting on the Lord Jesus with all of your heart and hope in him. But I'm trying to stir you towards a joyful seriousness in hoping in the fact that Jesus Christ will come for you, his people, will come for us, his church, and we can wait on him. But we must do so soberly. We must do so with eyes wide open, recognizing that waiting is hard work. It's hard in a world that is not waiting for the return of Jesus. And this takes us to the third point, be sobered. Because waiting for Jesus will be hard amidst those who are not waiting for him. This is verse 49 to 53. He says in verse 49, as if we haven't had enough kind of strangeness to this point, 
I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. That's Jesus saying, I can't, I, I'm going to bring judgment upon the earth. That's another one you're not going to put on the Christmas card. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. But there is verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You might say, okay, Stephen, you seem really hyped about that, but I'm not seeing it. Here's what he's talking about. Jesus is looking forward, saying, I am going to bring judgment with me when I come. Those who are waiting upon me and waiting well, they will escape that judgment. They will feast at my grace. But those who are not waiting, they will experience judgment. But he says in verse 50, I have a baptism, ba- baptism to be baptized with. Baptism symbolizes judgment. It symbolizes the work of God in atoning for the, the, the sins of those who have sinned against him. And so Jesus is anticipating here his cross. He's saying, yes, judgment is coming, but I will be first in line in receiving it. And this is the hope of the Christian, is it not? Our hope is in Christ's death on the cross in our place. He endured that baptism of God's judgment that you and I might escape from it. And so we look upon him in faith and we take confidence that in Christ we are free. We are rescued. We are redeemed. And your Lord though he's looking, staring straight ahead with eagle-eyed resolve at what is to come, he is so serious about redeeming you and I, about accomplishing the work of his cross, that he says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He doesn't view it as a necessary evil. Like a meeting, i got to have this meeting, but I wish I could get out of it. I guess I'll do it. I'm kind of the one that's in charge around here. No, he goes to the cross that you might escape the penalty of the cross. And he goes to the cross that you and I might see looking back at his work and that we might say, you're telling me that there is a love of God that has my name on it that is so strong that the Son of God would shed his own blood for me. Not in the abstract not like, okay, God loves you. Or no, it's written in his blood. And it says it's for you. And he's distressed until he accomplishes it. But the cross also sobers us to see the opposition of those who do not hope in Jesus. He says in verse 51, Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I gotta be honest, this has been a difficult passage to like interpret. I I was working through it, I was navigating through it all all week. I feel like I was on, on task with like benchmarks that I try to try to, so I'm not slapping things together. 
But even then, I've still been wrestling over earlier in the passage. It was like, okay, is the passage about the servant who is, who is unfaithful? Is that pastors, Christian leaders, is that all Christians? Is that parable that? And then this, I'm like, is this, is this for like after somebody becomes a Christian? Is this post-judgment and all that? I'm still, I was still wrestling over this as I showered and shaved this morning. And I changed my mind. So now I'm going to take my notes and I'm going to put them right there. Because what I had written before, I've changed my mind. Actually, I need it because i got to see the Scripture reference. <laughs> Jesus is setting before us two things. He's setting before us that those who follow me, you will live in amongst people who do not follow me, and you will understand and you will experience difficulty because of that. Your life is oriented around Christ. You have a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a son, or daughter who thinks that is just weird. Weird at best, Wrong, evil, anything else at worst. It's part of it. Prepare for that. Understand that it will come. But also see how he ties this division that will come to judgment that will come. And so he who was the first fruits of, first one who experienced the judgment, this baptism that he experienced. You will either take shelter, you will either take refuge under his cross or that judgment that is still to come when he returns will be experienced. And so we who hope in Christ, we yearn for, we pray for those whom we love who do not yet know Christ. We pray for them to be converted by faith, born again, trusting in the grace of God. So understand this life will be hard but understand eternity will be harder. And so we wait well in addition, not only that we may see our Lord's face, but that those around us may see our Lord's face. Those whom you desire to see born again, they will likely not be converted if Jesus is only useful to you. If you're not waiting for him, if he is always on the bottom of the totem pole of importance. But if you're waiting with every fiber of your being, and those around you whom you desire to see born again, see the seriousness of your heart towards him and the love that you have for him. They will see there's something real and powerful about that Jesus. And may God use it to bring you to himself. See, Jesus makes a terrible salesman. Who wants to follow Jesus? If you don't follow him well enough, you're going to get cut up, thrown in with the unfaithful. He doesn't try to get you in the car or sign up for the rental property, and, and when you ask a question, he doesn't say, oh, don't worry about that right now. Just imagine yourself hitting the open road in this beauty. He says here, it's going to cost you. He says, but it is beautifully worth it when you see what I have done and what I promised to do in you. And he sets before you waiting well as the hope of your soul, trusting in Christ, and the one to whom your heart yearns for. And he offers you in the church, in brothers and sisters in the faith, a family of believers. When we feel the strain of brothers and sisters by blood or by family who have pushed us away for Christ, he gives us one another who welcome one another in and we say we pull up to the table of his feast, of, of his grace 
and we will never grow hungry. Waiting is hard, but it's important. And our Lord gives us himself as we wait by giving us one another and by promising that one day we, his people, will see his face.